Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Henry Jukes, the experimentation architect at Split Software. Today, I'm joined with my usual panel, Jeffrey Groman. Uh, how are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing awesome. Joe Stevens. Uh, welcome, Joe. How's it going? Lovely to be here. Doing great. Having a good day. Glad to hear it. And this week, our guest is Alessandro Diaferia. He's here to, to talk to us about his blog posts and kind of his thinking on DevOps, the mythical DevOps engineer. Welcome to the show, Alessandro. Thank you very much. Really, really excited to be here. And uh, thanks for having me. Hey, folks. One of the things that I find that really makes a difference for people being happy in their job is working in a place that makes a difference. And there's a terrific company out there that's looking to hire full stack developer just like you. And that's Faith Life. Their average tenure is five years. I mean, five years, that's forever in developer years. Usually I see people changing jobs every one to two years. People are sticking around because they're great. They have a great values-based culture and they are hiring developers in the United States. They're looking for full stack developers who can do C Sharp or JavaScript on the back end and React on the front end. Go check them out at devchat.tv slash faithlife. That's devchat.tv slash faithlife. So excited to have you. It's a really excellent you know, blog that you have. You have writings on a lot of topics, kind of technical and also theoretical. You know, in particular, uh, we're here to dive a little bit more into this idea of that mythical DevOps engineer. And you know, reading through that blog post, it really reminded me of kind of prior dissertations on the myth of the, the 10x engineer. But I, I found this one into kind of a lot more depth on the issues and some potential solutions for growing a DevOps culture. I guess to start with, what is it about the DevOps engineer that is mythical? Well, from my point of view, at least, I'd say, well, one of the things that's, you know, that that comes across pretty interesting from, from my point of view is the fact that, well, not so recently, but, you know, in the last five to 10 years, you know, I think companies have started using the excuse of DevOps to kind of look for a, you know, for a kind of figure of a, you know, professional figure that can do a lot of, you know, different things as if that was, you know, the way of solving possibly a bunch of uh, intrinsic issues that technological companies were, were, you know, facing. And so I'd, I'd like to clarify that this is, this is not a blog post that you know, came uh, easy for me. It, it took a while to to write it. I, I I'm not super quick at writing blog posts. I like I like to do it, but I'm usually pretty you know introspective when it comes to writing something for my blog. And on top of that, I wouldn't call myself like well, I, I wouldn't call myself a DevOps engineer. You know, after after you read the the blog post, you realize why. But I'm I was born a programmer, like a developer. And I've always been very, very close to the systems aspect. But that is, I think, just because I started contributing to open source. It was KDE, my first real contribution, the desktop environment for Linux. So I kind of got used to, you know, using Linux and understanding, you know, the Linux and how things run on the system after you have developed them. So 
you know, after the after the last, let's say, yeah, for three to four years, I've started to read much more on the on the topic. And I, I really embrace the philosophy of, you know, a kind of enabling collaboration between different teams because I, I am uh, I am pretty well after seeing a few things over the years in my professional career, I strongly believe that we need, you know, specializations in our jobs and we need to enable them to work together as opposed to just hoping that every single engineer can do everything on the full stack. That's my, my take on it. Yeah. And when I first kind of was introduced to DevOps, um, the way that it was presented to me as a backend developer was, oh, hey, you're responsible for all of your operations now. And you're a developer that is now ops. And then I look around at kind of the current environment and I often see teams that are just your traditional operations team, but they're called DevOps now because that's the more popular term. You go into kind of some of these anti-patterns, for lack of a better term, of, you know, roles in DevOps and what a single DevOps engineer kind of looks like. Could you talk a bit more about those, uh, what you've seen out there in the market? Yeah. So, well, so first of all, as I said, it's been a, an interesting research. So I, I will probably not remember them all off the top of my head, but let me go through a couple of them. So definitely, definitely there is the, yeah, I call it the flexible problem solver. And yeah, I, I like so these are, you know, job specs on the internet that I, of course, changed a little bit to make sure they, you know, they reflect exactly what I was thinking after reading a few job specs. So they're not exactly one single job spec that I found on the internet, but I tried to extract, you know, specific aspects of them. And this is in particular, this was, was really saying they cross and merge the barriers that exist between software development, testing, and operations teams and keep existing networks in mind as they design, plan, and test. So it was, it was really interesting for me. This is, this is probably the classical example of the DevOps engineer being thought of as a single figure that does everything in the company. And I mean, this is probably the, the easiest to make sort of mistake, especially by probably companies that are not really, you know, so they have, haven't thought enough about the, what DevOps means and probably are trying to, you know, hire for roles, trying to, to chase specific, you know, fashion trends in the industry. But this is, this is probably the first one that comes to my mind. And the, you know, the thing that, that they stress often is the fact that they have to multitask and handle multiple urgent situations, you know, coming at them. I think this is pretty, you know, self-explanatory. It tells you, if you read a job spec like that, I mean, I personally think there are these functions in the company and they're hoping, you know, to solve them by hiring more people or hiring different people that they don't believe they already have in, in the company. So is the problem that companies are seeing this idea of DevOps and saying, hey, why do I need to hire a whole team or a whole bunch of different specialties? I'll just hire this DevOps person and voila, <laughs> all of my problems go away. I don't have to hire three or four people. I just have to fire and just have to hire somebody who's really good at like, you know, six different things and can handle all those six different things all at the same time. I don't 
you know, it, it's sort of silly to think about, but I, I mean it seriously. Do, I'm curious. Do you, do you think companies are doing that, thinking, oh, this is a great new paradigm. It just means that, you know, one or two people takes care of an entire department. See, I'm not sure, like, probably some companies do think about it, but I definitely, some job specs definitely make me think that these companies are really looking for a, a silver bullet or, or something to, you know, solve all all their problems. And maybe maybe sometimes it's, it's just a matter of changing the way you express the, you know, position you're looking for. But But I find that often job specs are written before understanding what the problem is they're they're trying to solve in the company and i think that that is a, that is probably the biggest mistake you can make the other thing i i sort of also wonder is our company is just you know you see it all the time i i you know i'm in the security field and i see it all the time where companies sort of latch on to the latest um lingo right the latest trendy thing that people are talking about and DevOps is, you know, why should we hire infrastructure engineers or sysadmins or whatever it is that we used to call them? We'll call them DevOps engineers because that way that's what that's the modern lingo. And that's probably what somebody wants to have their title to be. Or, you know, I, I, I sort of wonder if it's just sort of latching on to that idea of, hey, we have to we just have to use the, you know, the latest terminology so that we feel like we're still part of the cool crowd. It's uh, it's probably, I mean, most of the times there is, I find a disconnection between who, you know, the, the engineering team that is looking for, uh, you know, for, for help, basically. They're looking for a spe- specific figure they want to hire to help them do what they're doing. But sometimes there is a disconnection between that and who comes, comes up with the, the jobs back and that in that in those situations you might have you know teams that are dedicated to writing jobs packs that might want to maximize uh, the funnel of uh, you know people applying and that might lead to use terms that they probably don't even you know understand fully i probably that devops is probably one of the most unfortunate terms in our industry i believe in all seriousness i i actually think that you know, there's sort of this, you know, it's sort of like the the infrastructure folks, the IT folks have always gotten the blame, right? It's, it's always, they're not keeping up. They're not, you know, we don't have enough storage. We don't have enough servers. We don't have enough VMs. We don't have whatever it is. Like they're not, they're always behind, you know, just sort of classically in, in the IT big scheme of things, you know, they're sort of the fingers are always pointed at them as saying they're the, you know, the, the choke point in the whole system. And that's what's slowing us down. That's the constraint. And I do sort of wonder if people think, well, if we just call it DevOps and we hire a DevOps manager or something like that, like we, we do a little bit of, you know, I don't want to just sort of say it's all lip service. Like maybe they'll hire somebody who has managed DevOps teams before or something like that. And then, you know, so they'll try to put something in place. But I think that's just like this feeling of, well, if we just sort of rename it and give it a little bit of a change, that that will culturally change this whole, you know, constraint. And all of a sudden, you know, we'll be able to just push out new code, new features much more quickly, keep up with customer customer demand and, and the 
you know, the expectations that we've built with our, with the business, with the customers. And, and I think, you know, I feel like, Alessandra, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like you're sort of saying this too, that, that people don't really have this sort of forethought as to, okay, how do we really, what's really the problem? Where is the bottleneck or bottlenecks where they probably are? How do we fix it? And, and maybe what they're really doing is just saying, hey, this paradigm is supposed to fix it. Let's just throw it out there and let it and let it solve all of our problems. See, this is this is particularly close to me as a topic. The the the, the case of systems engineers. You know what what happens to them in this in the in a DevOps in a DevOps situation. I've always worked very very closely to the you know infrastructure engineering and systems engineering you know space to to make sure my software was was going to production and and talk you know after talking to a, a couple of friends um i've recently the, these are you know systems engineers and uh, i've talked to them recently i haven't had a chance to work with them for a long time but i used to work with them and it seems that some of them are perceiving this DevOps movement as something that goes sort of that undermines them some, somehow. And I think this is just the result of an industry, you know, misrepresenting what DevOps, what the DevOps philosophy is. Because I don't think, like, I personally think that a company that wants to embrace the DevOps philosophy one of the first things you have to do is not hire a DevOps team and replace your systems engineers with a DevOps team. What you what you have to do is realize that your systems your system engineers are what really enables your DevOps capability because there's so much, you know, there's so much enabling work that has to be done before you can embrace a DevOps culture fully and that has to be done at that level at that low level which is the systems engineering level so i think even the fact that a lot of people in the systems engineering uh, space think they are undermined by the devops you know culture i think that is that is a bad result of talking about devops philosophy that 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 is not in my opinion what what uh, we wanted where we wanted to get, basically. You know, if a DevOps engineer, you know, like Swiss Army person doesn't, you know, exist, there isn't a reasonable expectation from any particular role. And there's kind of that that opposite side of like, great, let's keep all of our silos, let's keep the security team, let's keep the systems engineering team, let's keep the build and release team. You know, I, I think one of the terms that you're using, this idea of a, a DevOps culture, that it's more about, a process by which people collaborate and work together rather than necessarily a discipline in and of itself. Um, It's a really interesting idea to explore. For you, what does it mean to have a DevOps culture? Yeah, so one of the, the main aspects of a DevOps culture, in my opinion, is making sure that all the people working know that they're working, you know, together towards a common goal. And this is probably... The first thing you have to, as a company, you have to address because it's, it's, I mean, it's natural that you get, you know, you get so focused on, on what you're working on that you might lose, you know, you, you might miss the point of what you're doing basically as a 
common goal basically in in the company and i think that having clear in mind why we're doing what we're doing in in an organization you know sort of automatically enables collaboration between teams because it's not just I'm, I don't know, it's not just I'm building the infrastructure because I have to, I'm building the, this infrastructure because I have to enable the business to be, to become successful. And the only way I can do it is by collaborating with all the other, you know, different teams to make sure that they can do, you know, what they're supposed to do in, with the least possible friction. And this, I mean, it, it is natural, especially, I remember, especially at the beginning of my career, the only thing I cared about was writing code. I mean, that was my, my only, my only purpose. I, did, I didn't even care if, if that code was going to go in production or not, or if it, if it was, you know, running properly or not. I think it's, it's, it's a natural sort of tendency, especially at the beginning. But I mean, in, in the long term. I think a company needs to to foster collaboration between teams and make sure everybody feels comfortable, you know, uh, interacting with each other, asking for help and making sure it's always clear, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. I think this is probably the first thing I would tackle if a company believes, you know, they're not they're not possibly moving in the right direction. So Throughout your post, you, you you talk about a number of different job descriptions or, or job description you know, templates that you've seen, and it, it it seems that you're alluding to those being a giving signal of effectively negative cultures inside companies or, or or misalignment with what you understand to be more effective oper- operational goals. What are the kind of things that you look for in in job descriptions from other companies that would indicate more of what you would expect to be a successful fit? Yeah, so definitely, definitely, the things I call out in the blog post are some are you know are aspects that uh, kind of you know put me off in a way. I've I, I've sort of learned over the years that possibly, I mean, the job spec doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, the, the culture, the culture in a company. Definitely there are terms, there are, you know, uh, phrases like you're going to have to deal with multiple urgent situations at a time. I mean, I, that, that is something it's, it's natural having to, to handle, you know, multiple urgent situations at a time possibly everywhere in any company that will happen. So I don't see that as something that characterizes a role in, in a company. But yeah, definitely I, um, what, I, what I look for in a, in a job spec is definitely not looking for, you know, years and years of experience in a specific programming langu- language. Uh, that is something, I don't know. I, I personally have worked with, with a lot of programming languages over the years. And, and I don't think, I mean, pr- programming and building software, once you have experience with the basic building blocks of building software, we're humans, we can adapt pretty easily, you know, to different languages and different paradigms. I don't think that is something that companies should be, should stress too much about. That is my, my definitely one of the things I, I care about in, in job specs. And, Another thing is 
definitely seeing a DevOps engineer role kind of, you know, kind of, you know, you know, makes me makes me wonder if that is the, the right place I want to work. And but it it's unfortunately it has become some sort of, you know, standardized term to, you know, refer to a mix of platform engineering that has, you know, a tendency to understand what's, you know, what's software engineering as well and, and vice versa. Uh, but that is another thing that I'm not super happy to read. And yeah, and, and in general, job specs can say whatever they want, but un- until you talk to real people, you will never really know what's going on in a company. And e- even then, I mean, we all know, even then, even after you've gone through the whole interview process, you might still have surprises after you join a company. So so it is an interesting question because I, I was actually going through the same thought process uh, about two years ago as I was writing job descriptions to, you know, hire more people to work with me. And the team I was originally hired to was actually called SRE at the time, which I, I thought was not a particularly good description of what what we were really doing. Cyber liability is one of a very, very large set of things that we're responsible for. We, we ended up actually deciding that infrastructure was the best descriptor because it was it was a team focused around what are all the fundamental pieces that are involved in delivering value. As you, as you mentioned, like how do you deliver value to, to your users? That's fundamentally the infrastructure that the company runs upon. I'm curious if there's, if there's a kind of role title that, that you identify with or, or if there's any suggestions you would have around, because the industry has seemed to coalesce around DevOps as a title, regardless of whether or not it may be appropriate. I'm curious what what you think is a good name for that in for you know people in this kind of squishy role. Yeah, I'm still looking for that actually because as I said, I've always you know, I've always ended up I, I consider myself a software engineer. I, I do, you know, engineering most of my most of the time basically. But I always end up kind of, you know, liaising with infrastructure, the infrastructure team to make sure what is being built is not only, you know, solid from an infrastructural perspective, but also takes into account the needs of the development team and also the needs of a development team, not only from a, you know, productivity point of view, but also even when an incident occurs or something you know, something is not working as expected. Is the the dev team, you know, enabled to investigate or do they always have to go through, you know, the, the infrastructure team? So, so yeah, I'm, I'm still struggling find, finding the, the right term for that. I, I think on my LinkedIn profile, I've added DevOps advocate because I usually advocate for DevOps practices. That, yeah, I mean, that is probably a good compromise because you, you say what you are uh, or what you like doing, which is in my case, I, I like building software. I'm a senior software engineer, but I, I deeply care about, you know, DevOps practices. Of course, that's why I write blog posts to, to clarify my view on, <laughs> on, on my title. But, but yeah, I think probably DevOps advocate is, is a good compromise. Cloud computing has changed the way we live, do business, and stay connected. With everyone using the same cloud platforms, winning and losing comes down to having the best talent to build products better and faster. 
So whether you're an aspiring innovator looking to level up or a business harnessing the transformative power of the cloud, tech skills and cloud certifications have never been more important. Cloud Academy has thousands of video courses, learning paths, practical hands-on labs, and real-world cloud environments and tools designed to help teams assess, build, and validate critical cloud skills. More importantly, Cloud Academy stays agile, challenging you with new content, labs, and tons of features that ensure your skills stay relevant and everyone can level up. They cover everything from major certifications to DevOps, security to programming languages. Cloud Academy is the cloud training platform of choice for Fortune 500 companies and thousands of tech professionals around the world. Don't just take their word for it. Check out the reviews on G2 and get started now at cloudacademy.com. For a limited time, our listeners can lock in a 50% off the monthly price for life. Just use the coupon code DEVOPS when checking out. It's a great way to pursue certifications or just cloud build expertise during this crazy time. Again, go to cloudacademy.com and use the coupon code DEVOPS to lock in 50% off the monthly price. Something that comes to mind is that, you know, this idea of kind of overloading a role or position with all of the different needs that an organization has reminds me to a certain extent within you know, the more traditional developer space, having that, that idea of a full stack engineer, where you're initially hiring someone and you're like, maybe, you know, you typically would see this type of job listing for a you know, very early startup where it's like, we don't have a front end engineer or a back end engineer or a data engineer or an operations engineer. Like, we don't have anyone. Can you do everything for us? And I feel to a certain extent, you reach a level where maybe you have a single person doing operations or, or a full stack engineer that winds up getting sidled into operations. And then someone's like, we need to address security, we need to address our build, we need to address platform and infrastructure and all of these things. Let's hire a DevOps guy who can be our magic bullet for all of it. But then as you look, Long term, I'd be curious to see at like whether larger organizations, you know, where you can have a twenty-person or thirty-person team that's responsible, you know, and can really truly specialize into these different aspects. How often DevOps is, you know, applied as a role rather than a concept within those types of organizations? I mean. I don't think like in, in those types of organizations, I think there's a much greater chance of specializing as you, as you say, but still, I mean, as the, the, the whole company grows, you want to be sure that you're all aligned on DevOps practices. If, if you, of course, if you believe that DevOps is, is good for your company, but I mean, that in my opinion, DevOps is not just about the technology organization. DevOps is a sort of, you know, a way of, doing business that ensures you know the success the success of the business because there are every every single team is is uh, is able to to cross collaborate and and do what's best for for the whole business so even even in big big teams i mean as i say in the blog post i strongly believe specializations are the right thing um and so the only thing that i care about is making sure that the specializations can can work together for the good of the business something i really like is your kind of description of devops and that it's that idea of the practices that aim at shortening the software development life cycle and you know kind of looking at how do you facilitate that and how do you also learn from it to a certain extent you know you, you also talk about this idea of improvement and experimentation. 
I guess I'd be curious to, you know, now taking a step back from this idea of organization and roles, like what do you think are some of the key pillars from a practical point of view that, that people can learn from and, and try to implement in their own organizations? Yeah, you're you're talking about still in order to become a DevOps sort of enabled organizations or... Um... Yeah, I, I guess it's that interesting difference between like, how do you become it versus like, what what are the types of practices that you find to be most effective to almost demonstrate it or implement the DevOps practices? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think, as you say, if you look at, I strongly, I strongly believe that, you know, shortening the, the feedback, you know, loops, basically increasing the opportunities for feedback is the key to learn and learning is the basis of of devops so i mean one of the things that you as an engineering organization that you can do is definitely try to understand if continuous delivery is something that makes sense for your you know for your business model and for your organization but i i believe that that is one of the things practical things that you can do and that is, I think, a forcing function to that pushes you to towards basically DevOps because it's you know it's it's like a cascade sort of effect that basically once you enable continuous delivery and once you once you push yourself to continuously deliver software to your uh, users, that is definitely gonna make you realize if what you're building not only works, but uh, makes sense for the whole business. Right after that, what you have, what you have to have in place is uh, monitoring. You need to understand if what you're building works and how it is being used. And that this is probably one of the things that a lot of things teams struggle with because when 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 you talk about monitoring, most people think about measuring memory consumption, CPU usage, disk space uh, availability, um, I don't know, request, re- request rate, and things like that. But, but when I say monitoring, I probably really mean analytics. That is probably even, if you're, especially at a startup, that is probably even more important than, than monitoring. You, you want to be able to understand immediately how the software is being used. And I mean, that is probably the best way to understand if what you're building makes sense or not. And that is going to, you know, inform you on whether you have to stop and change bet and bet on something else. Or if you want to keep, if it makes sense to keep going on with that assumption and iterate on that. Yeah, I, I think you really just hit on a, a couple of really big areas that we could probably spend a lot of time you know, sort of digging into, but I want to sort of jump back. We said continuous delivery sort of like, I'm going to sort of rephrase how you said it, but I think you said something like, you know, continuous delivery sort of defines, that's when you take that on as an organization that sort of defines that you've now moved into wanting to have a culture of, of DevOps. And I think, you know, I, I first, I, I absolutely agree with you because I think, you know, I, I've been around the industry for, for a long time and I've seen where historically where companies started to really take on things like release management and change management because they got burned or because they saw other people, other companies got burned because something was released 
when it shouldn't have or something was changed and it wasn't documented and nobody knew and only one person knew the person who made the change and then you know yada 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 and it's you know you you actually mentioned release management in in, in your blog post but i feel like those two areas have to you know are, those are two some of probably the biggest changes that a company has to culturally get away from it they're very adversarial really and i don't know if you've ever been you know in front of like a cab, you know, the change management board or whatever they call it. Um, a lot of companies call it a cab meeting, but they become really adversarial. Like you have to defend why you're making this change and before it can get approved. And you have this huge backlog of, you know, all these changes that have to be discussed. And it's, it's just sort of this adversarial model that just has to go away if you want to, you know, move into a DevOps culture of, you know, collaborating, learn, you know, having a learning organization and the feedback loops that are shortened, like you were saying, and all that. And I'm curious, I guess, big, you know, sort of lead up to the question, but how do you see, you know, I guess organizations sort of that are trying to move into that DevOps world or that culture, how how do those functions like change management and release management, how do they evolve in order to really enable you to go into like like you said, you know, continuous development. Uh, I'm sorry, con- continuous de- deployment. Yeah, it's uh, it, first of all, I think that it's something that has to come from from the top in a sense that basically, are we sure the organization, the company realizes why continuous delivery is important? That is the first step. And that is, you know, acknowledging that it is important for your business to be able to deliver continuously and be able, of course, to react continuously to what you deliver and to the feedback you get. Um, That is the first step. And I think after that, it comes that the changes you need to make in your release management processes, those come naturally. The problem is if there are are always going to be, you know, political sort of reasons why people want to preserve a release management sort of role in certain situations. And that's why I strongly believe it is something that has to be acknowledged from the top. The, the, the company needs to understand that continuous delivery is the best thing for their business. If it is, it might not be. But, you know, it is. there is this natural tension between people wanting to make changes and people wanting to preserve the system but as I said, it might make, make sense in certain in certain businesses. Maybe the company doesn't believe in changing what what it has, and maybe what they have as a software is enough for for their business goals, and they don't want to change it. And in that in that sort of situation, there's so much you can do. Uh, if you if you don't agree with that, you you need to find another place, or I don't know, be hired as a CEO in that company. But if the company strongly believes that instead uh, we need to change the situation and, and we need to adopt continuous delivery, then, I mean, the people that have been um, sort of in charge of release management, well, they need to understand that, the, you know, the benefit of continuous delivery too. And I don't think the re- release management just goes away, but a lot of it can be automated. And I mean, if you inst- instruct machines, well, they're going to do a better job than you as a person uh, when it comes to deciding if it's uh, 
if it's appropriate or not to release. And again, if you adopt continuous delivery practices, you might want to, you know, you might want to basically reduce the size of the changes you send to production because failures will happen, errors will occur. That is not something, you know, that, that is something that will always happen. The, the trick is being able to react to those, to those failures and, well, first of all, being able to detect them uh, and then react to those failures. Uh, this is another thing that an organization needs to understand when it, when it is, uh, you know, starting to adopt these practices. Errors occur and they will always happen, but it's much easier to fix an issue caused by two lines of code often than, uh, you know, uh, fixing the, finding where the cause of the issue is in a six month uh, worth of, of changes. You know, I, I've been, I've been companies that used to release software every six months and every, every release was a, a big day. <laughs> while, while I, while I say in the blog, say again. Or a nightmare. Exactly. Exactly. Are you like a huge sort of uh, event. While I say in the blog post, it should be a non-event. It should be something that happens continuously. And people should be in a position where they don't fear making changes to production. If something occurs and something something breaks in production, let's pull the so-called Andon cord and, uh, and jump all together on, on the issue and, and fix it and make sure that the service is restored for our users. There's nobody to blame. It's, uh, it happens. This idea of, of kind of measuring the changes that you're making using that to iterate, you know, it's, it's really largely that like agile lean philosophy of kind of working quickly and learning for each one of those changes. But more and more, I hear a lot of people, you know, kind of when they're faced with the, the idea of implementing that, it feels like this big idea of like, oh, running experiments and throwing out the work that you've already done and, you know, kind of choosing what you're going to release. For me, as someone that's directly working with companies, helping them implement this process of measuring and feature flagging, one of the things that you, know, that you touched on here is this idea that you know, many things that you are going to change are going to fail. You know, some in small ways, bugs and, and you know, things that need to be just turned off and then corrected. And then some in much larger ways that involve, you know, oh, we just built the wrong thing. We built something that's a problem for our users and we need to revert it. And the idea that you can predict that ahead of time is, you know, crazy. You know, the, the that if you knew that you were going to release something that users would hate or that had a bug, you wouldn't release it in the first place. But those things happen nonetheless. I'd be interested in kind of your process, you know, more hands-on, how you've been able to you know, encourage that type of measurement or, or how you think about getting started. Yeah, so from a personal experience point of view, I'm currently in an interesting situation because uh, I'm working in this very, very early stage startup. So we are at a stage where we're still, you know, finding clients and we're still finding the, you know, market fit. So the product is changing very, very rapidly as we learn from the demand and as we learn from our early, early adopters. But yeah, going back to your point, this is this is crucial. You have to basically put in place the right practices to make sure that uh, you you don't 
I, you, you know, I always see, I often see uh, teams, you know, incurring into the so-called sunk cost fallacy. They, they have started building something. And even if they start getting feedback that that, is, that might not be the right thing to build, there's, I don't know, there's probably a human tendency towards, you know, okay, we still, ha- we, let's finish what we have started and then, and then move on to the, a different thing to the next thing. I think, I think personally that is wrong. I think teams have to be ready to drop what they're doing to move to the next bet. I call them bets. I mean, it's, it's always a bet in, in software engineering. You're betting that what you're building is going to be useful and it's going to be, you know, bring value to your, to your users, to your customers. But I mean, you, you will not know until it goes to production, until you, you get feedback. So definitely you, you need to have, a, you know, an approach that kind of promotes this sort of uh, continuous reflection, introspection on what you're building. And mo- most, even more importantly, you have to build all the things that help you get feedback, it, it, not only from a, an automated point of view, but always uh, also as a company, you need, to, you need to find a way to really talk to your customers, to your users and, and get feedback on how they are, you know, getting value from what you're building, if they are. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, we work, you know, have, have worked through the experimentation process, learning a lot from uh, Microsoft's Bing organization, has a really deep culture of kind of testing and measuring each one of the changes they've made to their search engine. And one of the interesting concepts that I heard was that in their early days, you know, 80 to 90% of the things that they tried were unsuccessful, like had a negative effect on the metrics that they cared about, did not have the teams that they were expecting. And even today, you know, more than a decade on, as they're iterating, as they're building things, about half the changes they make have no or, or negative effect. And, you know, we see this repeated when we talk to other organizations that are doing this measurement, Uber, LinkedIn, Netflix. It's the idea that every change you make is, is a winner and is, is making that difference for you, even that most of them are, um, is actually quite rare. And, and you know, finding ways to validate that. And, and at the very least, even if you aren't choosing to say, oh, this didn't succeed, let's remove it. At least knowing that things that weren't successful, okay, I, I should, I shouldn't continue to invest on this path. I should explore other avenues. I should learn more from that process. Yeah, and pro- possibly even more importantly, before starting to build something, you have to be super clear about what you're trying to, you know, to achieve. What's the outcome you're looking for? Because sometimes that is not even super clear and. I mean, especially in uh, in startups, that might not be incredibly clear. You, you're still looking for uh, validation. You're still looking to understand what uh, what your customers are in need for. But definitely understanding really what what you want to you know what the KPIs you wanna you wanna change are you wanna affect are. I think that really helps then understanding if what you're doing makes sense or not. Awesome. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code.
So uh, Pix is that part of the show where we go and talk about things that interest us, whether technology-related or otherwise. So to, to kick us off this week, Joe, do you have any picks for us? I can really pair these. I'm buying an ultra-wide monitor, like a really one, really wide one. <laughs> That's going to be exciting. And I'm going to be figuring out how to mount it to my desk, which I don't know how that will go because the desk mount doesn't have a listed weight rating. So... We'll just see what the result is. Oh, that's, that's my life right now. <laughs> awesome. Jeff, how about you? Yes, it's funny. Uh, I think it, it ties in really well with we, with our topic today. But so I've been really sort of digging back into a book that I don't know if I read it before. I certainly introduced it several years ago called The uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Very, uh, yeah. I mean, I've read several of his books. Yes, it's really the management consulting you know, sort of genre, if, if for anybody who has, it's not familiar. But I'm working with a client right now who's struggling with this whole DevOps culture thing, where they have a team called DevOps, but it's not really, it's not really working. And I, I think a lot of it, it's so interesting to me how, you know, this, the book, The Five Dysfunctions is not really about technology companies necessarily. It's really just more generic around you know, what are the, you know, with any team, um, when you think when you have problems like absence of trust or fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, inattention to results, those are the five that he lists out as the five dysfunctions. But we could easily map out those five dysfunctions to how I think DevOps can fail miserably in an organization when you think about things like fear of conflict or, you know, yeah, that, you know, just people like, you know, not wanting to, not not communicating well or not wanting to communicate because it's just too difficult, too awkward or whatever, the absence of trust. I mean, all these things really sort of fit in. And, I, and I've sort of like, I, I've come to the conclusion that at least for some organizations, DevOps is just the tip of the iceberg of where their problems are. I think their problems are much more deeply rooted in the culture. And it's like, you got to bring in the management consultants before you can really solve the technology problems, you know? Like it, it's it's just we're you know the symptoms manifest themselves where we see them, but the problems are much more d- deeply rooted. So I'll, I'll put a link to this, but I, I think it's such a great it's just such a great book. Um, everyone should should read it who works with teams. <laughs> of that book, it was one of the first books recommended to me when I took on my first management role, and it was really fascinating to learn. Even if you're not leading you know, as, as a member of a team. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I would pretty much recommend anything he's written. I've written, I've read several of his books, and they're easy reading, and they're just so insightful. On my end, so uh, I, in addition to being really interested in software, one of the things that I love to do is cook, and I find that a lot of people involved in kind of the software world enjoy this kind of scientific approach to cooking, breaking things down. And if you haven't heard of them, there's a website called Chef Steps, which is a really fascinating combination of the, you know, in their early days, it's founded by the people that wrote the Modernist Cuisine Cookbook, that huge, like 700 page five volume tome on the science of cooking and they got their start producing large volumes of really you know the kind of like high cuisine modernist like tasting menu types food creating recipes for them and having these beautiful videos of it but over time they've evolved to take really just a much more scientific approach to recipe development so 
you know, types of recipes you'll find on their website these days are things like how to simulate the flavor of a dried steak in a day by like just coating it and marinating it in different ways. And so that is a really awesome learning process, but also is a great tool to use when you're looking for inspiration or looking for a good recipe. So I definitely recommend checking it out. And then wrapping us up, Alessandro, do you have any picks for us today? Yeah, it's it's something I've been, uh, you know, exploring lately. The fa- uh, it's it's called the C4 model. Um, it's a, it's a model by Simon Brown on how to represent you know architecture diagrams. But more than that, it's I'm currently kind of exploring and reading a lot on architecture and how that fits back in the you know lean days that we are living when it comes to software engineering because a lot of teams are sort of kind of forgetting about software architecture. And uh, so I'm trying to find my way to basically restore certain aspects of architecting software without uh, going back to sort of waterfall or uh, slower sort of ways of producing software. But definitely C4 model and Simon Brown in general, his videos are really, really interesting on on YouTube. Not I'm not fully bought in on everything he says, but there are very, very interesting, you know, things to think about in his videos. Wonderful. I'll have to check them out. Thank you so much. Well, Alessandro, thank you so much for being on the show as well. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. We'll have links in the show notes to that uh, blog post as well as you know all of Alessandro's work. Uh, yeah, it's really a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Really, really ple- a pleasure for me. Yeah, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Um, and thank you, the listener. It was uh, being able to share all this with you today. We'll catch you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.